This is normally the time in our service where you uh, sit and listen to someone preach to you, which is a beautiful biblical thing that we all need repeatedly. Um, What we're going to do today is a little bit of that and also a little bit of inviting you again into what does it look like for you by yourself or you with your gospel community to engage the words of Scripture together. So everyone should have an eight and a half by 11 sheet of white paper that says leading a DNA conversation on the front. We're going to use this structure to spend this time together today. I need my extroverts to work with me this morning because this will be very different than a normal sermon that we're preaching through. And my aim is not only to help you hear these words of scripture, but my aim is also to help you learn how to go to the scripture yourself. So you know the whole, you can give someone a fish, or you can teach them how to fish. We believe that both are good. Sometimes the pastor is just giving you fish, and you just need to eat that thing as he's prepared it for you. And you also need to be able to step out of here and to fish for yourself in the words of scripture and to do it together. So this is going to be more conversational than a normal sermon. We'll be working the front of that page until we begin to go, I understand how the word can come alive for me. And we'll also hear the words of scripture together. Okay, before anything, I'm going to read something to you from a trustworthy author. Hear these words, and this will catapult us into our morning together. Whether we like it or not, The moment that we confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, that is, from the time that we become a Christian, we are at the same time a member of Jesus' church. Even if we do not permit our name to be placed on a church roll, even if we refuse to identify ourselves with a particular congregation and share responsibility with them, Even if we absent ourselves from the worship of a congregation, membership in the church is a corollary of faith in Christ. It is not an option for those who happen to be more gregarious than others. It is a part of the fabric of redemption. God never makes private, secret salvation deals with individual people. His relationships are personal and true and intimate, yes, but private, no. We are a family in Christ. When we become Christians, we are among brothers and sisters in the faith. No Christian is an only child. All right, be honest with me. When you hear those words, do you go, Oh, no. Or do you go, oh, yes. This psalm is one of the many in Scripture that will help your heart to get to, oh, yes. All right, let's pray and we'll work it together. Jesus teaches to love one another. The world is constantly seeking its own rivalry and dissent and slander And violence and murder and pride are the mark outside of these walls. But I long for them to be different in here. 
pray that you would capture our hearts with a vision for community and intimacy and love and unity from your word this morning. At the same time, would you teach us how to read your words and be shaped by them? Hear my prayer for this and answer, I pray. Amen. All right, so front of this page, let's just read this together and then we'll do it together. When we are opening the word together in our smaller communities, we've got an acronym called DNA to just help us walk to receiving from the words together. D stands for discover. Led by the Spirit, we engage the words of Scripture together. In discover, we are asking, what does the Spirit want us to know? What do these words say? and mean. So we pray, we read the text out loud together at least once, we've done that twice now, and we have a conversation that gets at the big idea of the text, and here's the questions that frame that for us. Number one, what do these words teach us about God, who he is and what he's done? Number two, what do these words teach us about ourselves, who we are, and what we are called to do? And then how would we express the big ideas of these truths in everyday English? All right, can you give one to Jim? Does everybody else have one? I'm forcing one of these in your hands so you have this artifact. All right, so now I'm going to stand behind here, and this will be a little harder than in your living room or at Starbucks, but let's discover the words of this scripture together. So Bible's open. You can look up here or the back of your sheet. Let's work this text. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. All right, let's work on this. Behold, what is that word? That's the Bible word for, hey, drop everything else you are doing and don't miss this. Put away the iPhone. Do not be distracted. This is huge. This is worthy of your attention. This is worthy of you to think on and rest in and reflect on. Behold, don't miss it. So we should be jolted by the opening word of this scripture. And then these words, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Good is what kind of a word? It's an objective word about what is right, what is true. It's a morality word. This is a good thing, objectively true. And then what about the word pleasant? What kind of word is that? We would call that a subjective word. That's experiential if something is pleasant or sweet. So we have objective, subjective, good and pleasant. All right, think of something with me that is neither good nor sweet. What would that be? So just like wrong and bitter. Shopping on Black Friday, trying to get to the Burlington Mall. That is wrong and it is sin-inducing. Okay, good. Did you feel that? Anybody else? Moxie? Okay, help me. What is moxie? (laughs) 
a disgusting main beverage that is neither good for you nor is it sweet going down. I put a flat tire in the ice cold pouring rain. You feel that? It's not good and it's not fun either. Okay, what about good but not sweet? What's right and good but not pleasant or sweet? Anybody? Yes, the dentist. Perfect. You feel that? This is good. This is necessary for mouth hygiene, but they try to make it pleasant, not happening. Anything else? Good for you, but not sweet. Homework? Good. I put spinach. So you know how that works? I got to put this green vegetable down. But I wish that things were not this way. There's nothing sweet about this. All right, now hit me with something that is both good and sweet. What comes to mind? Ralph. Did you say cigarettes? All right. (laughs) Ralph, you're a simple man. I love you. Cereal and milk in the morning, especially if it's got whole grains and some sugar in there, good and sweet. What else? Good and sweet together. A new baby that is beautiful and right. The Lord loves children. And is there anything sweeter than a cooing little baby in your arms? Man, that is right and enjoyable. I put your wedding day and night, is that a good thing? A man and a woman covenanting together before the living God to start a life and the food and the party and the making love, the whole thing is good and sweet. Grace's squash with brown sugar and pecans. Have you had that dish? It's like good for you and it's delicious when the Lakers lose by 30. That is morally right and so sweet. In other words, this is supposed to blow you away when good and pleasant go together. That's something else. Now let's think of this in terms of community and relationships. What would neither good nor sweet look like? What is wrong and bitter in a relationship? What words come to mind? So we might think rivalry, division, a fight, betrayal, divorce. That is wrong and it is bitter. Unfortunately, that's what our relationships often look like. Okay, what would one step better be? Good, but not really too sweet yet. This would be duty. This would be saying, okay, I know we have to stick together and We don't really get along, but we're going to fight to make it happen because that's right. But there's not a sweetness or a peace there. How about when a family, a marriage, a team, a church, a community has good and sweet both together? Well, what's the Bible word for that? That is unity. That is what we are going for as a church. Behold, it is good and sweet 
when brothers dwell in unity. What's with this word brothers? So this would be the masculine inclusive. This is a way of saying the whole group of God's people all together, men, women, and children. Uh, In American language, it would be like if you said, hey, the cruises are coming over. Cruz is the father's last name. When Grace married me, she took my last name and we became one flesh together. Then when we started to have children, they inherited that name. The cruises is the way of saying the totality of the family. That's how you should hear this. When the brothers dwell in unity, all of God's people, all the men, women, and children associated to all of the 12 sons of Jacob, the people of God, all of them. When they all can get together in unity, that is good and sweet. Good and sweet, and what else? Uncommon, unusual. What is the norm for life and community? Is it pleasant or is it something else? The norm when we get in community is to divide. Did you take psychology in high school or in undergrad? Psychology class, they think they figured the world out, but all they are really doing is giving commentary on what Scripture shows us to be true. Sibling rivalry. Who's heard that word before? Yes, Sam Robinson raised his hand fast. So did Casey. Wow. You notice the 10-year-olds know all about sibling rivalry. Good. The Bible shows us from the very first communities that the tendency is not toward good and sweet unity but toward rivalry and betrayal. Who were our first brothers in the Bible? Cain and Abel. What went down there? Just an awful rivalry, betrayal, and murder. Who's the next story of brothers in the Bible? Jacob and Esau. What went down there? They were fighting when they were still in the mother's womb. Who's getting out first? And they fought all through life. Who's the next story of brothers? Joseph and his 11 brothers. And what happens there? Competition and rivalry and betrayal. And they sell him as a slave. Does everybody feel this? That is the norm. But the psalmist is saying to us, hey, there's a different door to walk through than the one marked by sin. This one is marked by love and unity And it is worth pursuing brothers dwelling together in unity is a good thing. Let's keep discovering. He gives us two analogies. This was the first one. Here's what it's like. It's like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Aaron was the priest of all of the people of God. One priest would represent the people before God. Do you feel the unifying element right there? One man in whom we all would approach God in the older covenant. Aaron would dress in these exotic clothes. And one thing he had was a breastplate with all 12 names of the 12 tribes of the people of God on his chest representing unity. When he took his place before the people, they would dump a bucket 
of oil, anointing oil over him to prepare him for his service. And it would run down his head and his beard and his robes. And it would pour over the names of all 12 of the tribes of Israel. How are we to feel this together? Well, has anyone ever been totally, completely soaked from head to toe? Has anyone been that way? We went to the fireworks up in Wakefield one year. Was anyone here there when there was the historic, okay, the Betas were there? The forecast was rain, like really bad rain is coming. Do we do the fireworks? Do we not do the fireworks? Should we go? What's going to happen? Everybody goes anyway. At about 9.01, when the sun has just dipped over the horizon, but it's still bright, they were like, forget it. Let's put the fireworks off right now before it rains. They did the whole fireworks show, and it was uncanny, right? Last one ended, and then the skies opened, and all the rain in the atmosphere fell at once. Boom. Anyone who was there was running like crazy to try and get to shelter or to their car. By the time that we got to our car over on North Avenue, what was true about every inch of my body? Soaked. You know, your clothes weighs like three pounds and you're jumping in the car. Every inch covered with rain. Do you feel that unifying, soaking happening? That's this right here. Aaron representing the people, being drenched with this anointing oil, and all of them is covered. It's all coming together. Costly. What's the most expensive liquid in Bostonian culture? really expensive stuff that you wouldn't waste. What is it? I think of pomegranate juice. Have you seen the cost of that stuff? $10.50 for like a 20 ounce. I'm like, this thing better make me. I better be shaped like a V after I drink this. Think of pomegranate juice. Buckets of it. That is costly, precious stuff. That's how God sees the unity of his people. It is valuable. How about the smell of a bucket of perfume poured over someone's head? Anybody walk into the Yankee candle that's over on Route 1 by the ship and just start opening stuff randomly? Have you just... It's like this crazy experience for your nostrils inside of that store. If you took six gallons of Drakkar and dumped them on my head, you would smell me from two miles away, right? That is a unique, strong scent. Does everyone feel this? That's what Christian unity is like. It's precious. It's attractive. It smells good. And it's a way for all of us to be united together. You discover that in these words. And then a second one. It is like the dew of Mount Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. So Mount Hermon was the biggest, tallest, baddest mountain in this whole area, like Kilimanjaro, just this ridiculously huge mountain. Has anybody ever been up on a mountain like that overnight on a chilly night? What happens when you wake up the next day? What has covered everything? Dew. 
thick, wet dew, and it's everywhere. We go up to Toa Nippi sometimes for retreats. I got up one time at 6.15 in the morning. I don't remember why, but I had to take a phone call. And this is one of those places where you got to walk around to find a spot where you get a bar and then you can talk to someone. And I walked outside in my socks, and I'm walking looking for the bar and not thinking of my feet. And I walked out onto the, the place where you play, and it was soaked with freezing cold dew everywhere. That's what this would have been like every morning on this mountain. And then cascading down onto Zion, the image is that those waters from that huge mountain would flow down to the smaller mountain that the city of God was on. It's like dew on a really tall mountain. What is that supposed to trigger for you? Well, the same thing, right? When there is dew in a field, is there any part of that field that doesn't have dew? Uh, Maybe technically I'm not a big dew guy, but the idea is the whole field is covered and united by this dew. You feel that? The ubiquity of it. Dew is also life-giving. There was no river here like in Egypt. Israel depended upon water from the sky in the form of rain or water in the form of dew. Where there was dew, there was life. That's the city of God unified and filled with life. And then these are the final words to discover. It's there that the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Close, together, unified, tight, love. That is the place where the Lord pours out his blessing. This is our future, sinless brothers and sisters, forever in the new heaven and the new earth. This needs to be our present, fighting as hard as we can to experience the grace of love and unity together. What do these words teach us about God? This is what you would now do on your own or in a gospel community. You'd ask the room, and you might come up with things like, Well, God values unity. He loves it. It's good and pleasant in his sight. Yeah. No surprise that the triune God would love it when his people are as one. That's true. What else? He loves when his people are unified. He promises to bless a community that goes after understanding and love and forgiveness. What does the text teach us about ourselves? Well, we are called to love one another. There is an open door to something like a wedding night or a Lakers loss or the other things that we said are good and pleasant. And that open door, that calling for you is to love the person next to you, to live at peace in this place. We need to go for that together. There is life there. So we've now articulated the big idea that unity and oneness is the best thing imaginable. There's life there. It's sweet. 
and we should go for that. All right, after you've spent time discovering the big truth of Scripture, we don't just stop there and say, well, that was interesting for my brain, and I understand things a little better. But now we say, what about my heart? The word for this is nurture. Let's read that one together on your sheet. Nurture. Led by the Spirit, we assess our lives in light of these words. In nurture, we are asking, what does the Spirit want us to feel? How does my life accord with the implications of these words? Listen for the heart as everyone shares. Work from fruit, which would be our surface sin, to root, which would be our unbelief, and encourage repentance from ignorance or from sin or from self-righteousness. So this is what a gospel-centered church allows the Word and the Spirit to do, is move from head to heart. What might that look like here? Well, you might ask, how are you doing with this? How are you doing with this call to selfless love with the people that Jesus has given you? Have your thoughts about others being marked by love and understanding? Or has your mouth been filled with gossip and slander? Maybe someone may say, hey, you know what, this week I saw somebody in church doing something not the way I would do it, and then I went to someone else and I said about how stupid that was and wrong they were. Or I really just don't even feel like being around the people of God right now because of this or that or the other, or uh, I just don't like so-and-so. And I know these words are telling me that there's beauty if we're together, but I have an issue with them. Or I don't know anybody here. That might be your confession. I'm not living in unity with because I don't even know names and stories. See how the word pressed to the heart opens up an opportunity for us to share where we are at in regard to the truth of Scripture. And then you could listen to those confessions and ask questions to mine down to the heart. Maybe somebody in your group has been really hurt in the past. Maybe the past week, maybe the past history, and they have a hard time with this. Maybe somebody just never knew and they thought, Shoot, man, I'm an American. I just do what I feel like doing every day. I didn't know I was supposed to be bound together in community like this. This is new to me. Whatever it is, here's where you press to the heart of the issue with people. And you call for a change of heart. That's repentance. Sometimes it's repentance from ignorance. I just didn't know until we opened the Bible together. And I'm so sorry about that, and I want in. Sometimes it's repentance from sin. I have been divisive. I have been lazy. I have slandered. I have not loved my neighbor, and I need Jesus' forgiveness. Sometimes it is repentance from self-righteousness. Well, I would be unified with his people, but they're just so sinful. And you get to press toward that issue. Whatever it is, do you feel how just this simple four verses has opened up an ocean 
of heart change in conversation with Jesus' people. We press for those places. Discover, nurture, and then we finish with act. Let's read that one together. Led by the Spirit, we pursue glad obedience. In act, we are asking, what does the Spirit want us to do? How can my life look different in response to this truth? And here's the big question at the end of these times together. Hey, if these words are true, how does my life change this week, this month, this year? The truth of these words needs to come out of our hands, right? We say that your theology must come out of your fingers. That's what the Lord wants from us. So let's talk about act together. What action would these truths drive us to? Well, we're trying to act on these words at the church level, for example. This is why we have built a church that is not built around programs, but built around relationships. You know the difference? A program does not require deep relationships. You can plug in and plug out as you please. But a church that's built around relationships, and that is slower, that is harder. But this text tells me it is also better and sweeter. So we have tried to take these truths of Scripture and act on them in the DNA of our church and say relational intimacy is going to be central. As a pastor, I'm trying to act on these truths all the time. Theological unity is essential. That's why as a shepherd, I work to bring truth to the center of this church that we can all be connected to it. Missional unity is essential. This is why we're trying to disciple you to think of others and be on mission with us. There's no better unity than when you get together to go do something together. This church needs to be on mission. Relational unity is crucial. This is why I am often sitting with you in this room back here or in your home and saying, you need to forgive. You need to love. You need to reconcile. You need the grace of Jesus to change your heart. Let's do this. I am constantly acting as a shepherd to bring unity to the life of our church. I write these kind of notes to our pastor team. Guys, we have early birds, night owls, multitaskers, lone wolves, and more on this one team. We need to be aware of this reality and give and take with an emphasis on give, meaning both accommodating to the needs of our team when our natural tendency is not to, and bearing with and thanking God for brothers who roll differently. You feel that? Why would I wrote that note to my team? Because I'm acting on my heart issues that have been exposed by the words of Scripture. And then, of course, what about you? If these words were true, what changes in your life this week, this month, this year? Maybe this week you need to go make peace with someone 
that you are at odds with as far as within your power to say, I'm sorry, help me love you, but I want what's better and sweeter. I want unity, no compromise. Uh, Some of us need to stop coming to church every 19th Sunday because it's impossible for you to be unified with the people of God if you're so on the outskirts of the life of the community. All of these could be good action points for you to say, I'm going to act on believing that unity is better and sweeter. And of course, at the end of every night, we throw ourselves on the mercy of Jesus. We lead each other to Christ because none of us has the power within us to pursue glad obedience. And so together, like a bunch of beggars, we come to Jesus with open hands and say, Will you please work a desire for love and understanding and unity in my life, in our lives, so that we may experience what is better and sweeter? The words of Scripture engaged, believed, and acted upon, there is life and joy in there. All right, I'm going to pray, but let me swing back to our big idea one more time. Do you believe? that unity, at whatever cost, is worth going for. That it is better and sweeter to dwell in relationship with each other than not. If your heart is there, let me pray that Jesus gives you the grace to go for that this week. Let's pray. Spirit, you said to us, Behold, good and pleasant when brothers dwell in unity. Our world rejects that truth, but in the life of this church, we want to say yes to it. I pray that we would believe it and that we would act on it. Any place in this body where there is dissension, rivalry, betrayal right now, I pray that you would win that you would overcome by your power and that you would bring us to repentance, understanding, other-centeredness, and love. I pray that this people would be good and sweet because we are united in Christ. Hear our prayer for these things. Move on them this week, Spirit, I pray.